0: Hi, Mary. So we mentioned New Year's resolutions a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and I guess this is that crunch week when a lot of people find themselves sort of giving up. So how are you getting on with yours?
1: Yeah, funny you should say that actually, Dan. So I think what I mentioned was my headline New Year's resolution was all to do with balance. And one of the underlying things this time, particularly given it's January and we're sort of locked down, was just to leave the house once a day, just to get that tiny little bit, even if it's just around the block, fresh air, which sadly I failed last week because there are a couple of days where I did stuff in the house, but I didn't actually manage to step outside. So, yeah, not so good.
0: I suppose that shows how tough even simple things are. Doing even simple things every single day is actually quite difficult.
1: Yeah, really hard. And you think five minutes, not difficult at all, but you get to the end of the day and you think, well, yeah, if I'm getting ready for bed, I'm probably not going to then walk around the block. But, yeah. How are yours going? I know you, you're particularly keen on New Year's resolutions, aren't you? So.
0: I am. I am. Interesting one for me this year, because usually my reflection on New Year's resolutions is to keep them really specific and have a really small number. That's what I've found kind of works. But actually this year, inspired by one of our colleagues, I decided to set out 40 things that I want to do in the year that I'm 40. I turned 40 in March this year. So I set out this big list of stuff, which I've got on the wall now in my office in front of me, just to keep, keep reminding me of it. And it's just quite daunting in a way because 40 things, you know, I mean, that, that's a lot of stuff to cover in a year. So some of them, a lot of them are relatively simple things, actually, which I think is probably, probably right for this year.
1: Before you're 40, it's, it's in the year. No, no,
0: that would be tough. That would be tough. I'd give myself the whole year, whole year to tackle or most of them. But I'm off to a decent start. I've got a couple couple of little ones ticked off and I've made a decent first impression on some of the habits and stuff. But you know, it's a big list and I'm going to have to keep myself really honest on it, I think, during the year if I'm going to really do it.
1: Nice. Well, what really good way of doing that is to have it up in front of you. If you see it every day, it's a, it's a very good reminder, isn't
0: it? Yeah, exactly. In
1: front of my desk saying, go outside.
0: Oh, no, seriously. note, I think having a, a few easy ones that you can tick off and give yourself a sense of progress is actually quite good as well. I mean, I had one which was refresh my sock drawer chuck out a load of old clothes i've been meaning to do for ages a lot of things on it stuff that i've been meaning to do but not getting around to and then there's a few like simple things like there's a few classic movies that i've never watched that i want to watch and a few other ones that you know from back in the 90s that i'd love to watch again kind of thing That my wife hasn't watched kind of thing so a a lot of them are stuff that we could tick off on a lazy sunday just sort of turning around watching tv and stuff but some of them are a bit a bit bigger than that but yeah yeah, plenty there
1: fantastic Welcome to Investment Uncut.
0: In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis.
1: And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com.
0: So this week on Investment Uncut, with the inauguration in the US of uh, President Biden, we are talking about the impact of the new presidency on markets. And joining us for that discussion, we have LCP senior partner, Paul Gibney. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan.
1: Welcome, Paul. Before we kick off, would you like to give the listeners just a bit of detail about your role at LCP and, and what that involves?
2: Okay, thanks, Mary. So my role at LCP, it's similar to most partners, in that I have a mix of responsibilities. So my job involves both client consulting, I advise several clients in all aspects of their investment arrangements, as well as research. On the research side, I research equities, and I also head up LCP's macroeconomics team. So I I think it's fair to say that I've been doing quite a lot of manager, market and economic research over the last 12 months.
0: Yeah. And Paul, I guess one real advantage we have because of our, our sort of role in the marketplace is that we get to, you, you get to talk to a lot of economists at other, other firms like investment managers and so forth, right?
2: Yes, we do. And in fact, we've just, well, we're just about to complete the most recent set of calls with those economists and managers and just getting their views on a very wide range of macroeconomic topics, not least of which
0: was the, the impact of President Biden being elected.
1: Fantastic, which makes you a perfect guest for today.
0: But Paul, before we get get into all of that, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV?
2: Okay, so I'm an actuary, so I suppose I'm expected to like numbers, but the number 5678287 probably means more to me than to most people. Okay. Uh, Yeah, bear with me. So before I became an actuary, I was an electronic engineer working in research, So that number is actually the number of a US patent that was granted to the firm I worked for, where I was, amongst others, credited with the invention that it relates to. So I'm sure you're deadly interested to know what it was. It related to what are called uniaxial conductive articles.
0: Wow. You're a patent holder, innovator. Yeah, from many years ago. Fantastic. Okay, brilliant. Well, look, we've set out, haven't we? We've set out six areas we think can be really interesting to talk about today relating to to Biden presidency. And we want to try and get through all of those in in the time. So what we set ourselves a challenge of trying to cover, trying to give ourselves about five minutes on each area, and then we're going to move to the next just to set up what they are quickly. First one is to do with the stimulus and knock-on effects on inflation, growth, and interest rates. Second area is around energy and infrastructure policy. Third one is environment and climate policy. Fourth area is China policy, I want to get into. Fifth is the appointments, cabinet appointments that Biden might make. And finally, sixth is tech antitrust area. So all pretty important areas for investors, I think. And I guess just firstly, before we get into that this week, I mean, of course, we've all read lots about security concerns around the events this week. And and I, I suppose it goes without saying that first and foremost, we hope everything does go smoothly and, and peacefully this week. Understandably, lots of concern out there, but we'll obviously focus on the on the market side of things. That being our sort of area. Not quite sure how to segue from that on, onto the first area, but let's just uh, <laughs> let, let's just do that. So, so Paul, on the stimulus, then we, we got some hint last week of what the Biden administration might plan to do on that.
2: We did. So as things stand, Joe Biden he's called on Congress to support an additional one point nine trillion dollars worth of stimulus. Just to give some context to that, that's. Eight to 9% of the size of the US economy. So, pretty significant. And that includes a mix of things. I think, very importantly, there's about $400 billion of that earmarked to fight the pandemic because he, Biden, rightly recognizes that to get America back on track, that issue has to be addressed and addressed forcibly. There's also an additional amount of money likely to be paid to individuals. So, another $1,400 on top of what they've received already. And I think interesting as well, the suggestion is that there'd be about $350 billion of that, which would go to state and local governments to help plug the holes in budgets that have emerged because of the pandemic. I think that's one of the reasons you've seen quite a lot of money flow into municipal bonds in recent days. Now, that stimulus of 1.9 comes on top of the $900 billion which was agreed last month under President Trump, and about $3 trillion that we've seen Past since the start of the pandemic. So we are talking big numbers, much, much bigger numbers than those we saw at the time of the financial crisis. And actually, when I was thinking about it today, it, it did remind me that there's a quote from a, a US Republican senator. I think his name is Dirksen. And he was quoted, this is going back to the 60s, he said, you know, a billion here, billion there, pretty soon you're talking real money. It's the same here, isn't it? That the difference is it's trillions rather than billions that we're actually talking about.
0: Yeah I mean it's, it's not just a little bit bigger than 2009 isn't it it's getting on for 10 times the size it is that in itself is is pretty staggering the, the scale of it
1: there've been a quite a lot of references to i guess comparisons to 2009 and, and the the sort of criticisms i suppose at the time that about whether biden and obama were, were going far enough and whether they settled for too little what sort of impact do you think that sort of rhetoric might have in terms of how this is presented and and how this sort of plays through
2: well i do think you're right Mary, to note that. This is huge compared to what was done in 2009. And to some extent, it's a recognition of some of the mistakes that were made last time around. So, therefore, many would say that the stimulus wasn't big enough and that austerity came in far too quickly in terms of interest rate rises, tightening of monetary policy, not enough fiscal spend. So, I think to give policymakers, whether it's governments or central banks, credit, they have acted much more forcibly, much more quickly, and I think to much better effect than they did previously. But of course, there will be consequences, I think, of this in markets. We've already seen them play out in the last nine months of last year, but we'll see further consequences, in my view, as we look forward into the
0: year ahead. And actually, one thing we haven't mentioned, but which probably goes without saying, but we, we should mention it quickly, is, is the election results in Georgia that happened at the start of January obviously have changed the picture a little bit, because that has meant that the Senate now sits at 50-50, Republican and Democrat, with the Vice President breaking the tie. And so now the Democrats effectively control all three layers of government in both houses of Congress, albeit by very, very slender margins. So potentially, that's increased the scope of what Biden could, could think about doing, right, since his election in November.
2: Yes. I mean, has.
0: it's interesting because it's an interesting study of how market narratives change, right? I mean, I think after the election in November, we were saying how the market narrative was all about divided government. There won't be huge stimulus, so that'll allow interest rates to stay low. And that's great for equities because we're talking about growth equities that that like low interest rates. And so the equity markets rallied sort of on the back of that. And the the market certainly seems to be in a glass half uh, full kind of mode at the moment. So on, on this news, the market narrative seems to be more stimulus, that's more growth that's great. That's good for markets as well. So so kind of having it both ways. I and mean, of course, we've seen really big market rallies since the election generally, particularly in those US mid-cap kind of areas. I mean, Russell 2000 index up over 30% since November and a big start to the year there, I think up almost 10% so far this year. Sectors like energy and finance driving that, which I guess are your typical growthy sectors. So the market seem to have moved on to a very much stimulus is good for growth. That's good for the cyclical sectors and and all your usual growthy kind of suspects.
2: Yeah, it does seem to be very much that way. I think in the UK, we now have a term for what we're seeing here, which is cakeism. (laughs) I like that. The idea that you can have your cake and eat it. So the points you make are, are good ones, Dan. I do think, though, there is some rationale to it in as much as you mentioned the fact that there is this huge stimulus, which is coming through. But I think as part of the package, the Democrats will be probably fairly reluctant to try and push through at this stage material tax hikes. So that might be something coming further down the line. But in the near term, I don't see that as being key consideration. And therefore, companies will get the benefits of the stimulus through extra demand, etc, driving through to earnings growth, but not necessarily having to pay those higher taxes in the immediate future, at least.
0: And I suppose one, one classic concern about stimulus is, of course, inflation. And I think we've seen long dated yields up a little bit. I think they're up about 20 basis points now since the election. And that's off for of about an 80 US 10 year yield at about 0.8%, now just over 1% which depending on how you look at it, is it, you might say it's a small rise, you might say it's quite a big rise. But the story there arguably could be why aren't they up more if we're talking about a huge, hugely inflationary growthy stimulus, but a little bit of an increase there in inflation and rates.
1: The second area down that you highlighted was to do with energy policy. Paul, could you give a, a quick overview of what Biden's thinking about in this area?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting that he has pledged to rejoin the Paris Agreement on climate change on day one of his administration. So that's going to happen pretty soon. He's also indicated that he wants to bring forward a $2 trillion package to help reduce US carbon emissions or emissions generally, pledging to cut to net zero by 2050, and also aiming to have the US power grid carbon free by 2035. So making buildings and homes more energy efficient, investing heavily in public transport and promoting electric vehicles. I think, that would have a material impact upon the likely trajectory of the temperature rises we're anticipating. So bringing us closer to the 1.5 target, but not necessarily quite getting there.
0: Yeah. And there's a really interesting document that we, we read from a manager that we, that we know pretty well, it was talking about some of the implications on, on energy in particular. And of course, the Clean Energy Spending Plan has been pretty well telegraphed, I think. The interesting point they made is that there are six Democrat senators from oil producing states. Um, particularly West Virginia, Pennsylvania, I think. And so any really far-reaching regulations, such as a ban on fracking, pretty unlikely to get done just because it would be so hard to get those Democrat senators on on board. So a tough balance there, I guess, because the Paris Agreement commits on the one hand to some pretty aggressive targets. And obviously you you can spend all you like on clean stuff, but trying to really pin down the fossil fuel piece is going to remain difficult, I suppose, while you've got that balance of power.
2: Yeah, I'd fully agree with that. So You can argue and I would that climate pledge that Biden has made is negative in the longer term for fossil fuels. But I think the argument would be it's probably more negative for oil generally than it is, say, for gas, which is a a less intense form of carbon, less carbon intense form of fuel. And in fact, if you could argue almost ironically, if what Biden wants to happen, which is this great uptick in terms of electric vehicles and public transport, then you could easily see a need for greater energy generation and therefore gas having a more of a role in the near-to-medium term than perhaps it has at the moment. So I, I wouldn't think that we'll see any ban on fracking in the near term. And I think that actually the outlook for fossil fuels is probably reasonable in the very near term, and probably more so for gas.
1: It's interesting to think about timing here as well, isn't it? Because we've obviously heard Biden say that he'll be rejoining the Paris Agreement on day one. But in terms of some of this more intricate policy, actually the timing of when it's been being sort of more firmly pushed through, we may not see a market reaction in the short term.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'd agree with that, Mary. One other thing that Biden has said is that he'll issue a moratorium on drilling permits, yeah, drill lands and waters. And As I understand, around about 20% of oil and gas is actually sourced from those lands. You could argue that actually in the near term, that would be a positive for fossil fuel prices. So reduction in the potential land and waters in which people can explore. But having said that, the, the latest auctions for drilling rights appear to have actually gone quite poorly. So there was no bid in Alaska for the permits, which were an offer from any of the major companies. So perhaps they're starting to see the way that the wind is blowing generally. And I think there's a separate discussion altogether to be had about how those big energy companies are actually responding to the climate initiative.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there is the the argument, and I think this was made in the doc we were referring to, where if, for example, it becomes very hard to construct new pipelines interstate, which is, is quite likely, that really increases the incumbency advantage of existing pipelines. So a lack of building of new stuff will actually certainly push up the price of existing assets a bit like you're saying. So it could be, could be beneficial to some of the fossil fuel companies in the short to medium term. And I guess that tying that back to markets, of course, it's well known now that the energy sector in the S&P is, is pretty tiny on the equity side. But of course, that, that we shouldn't forget this is huge for the high yield and LEV loan markets where you've got really big, chunky allocations there to, to energy players and often those kind of midstream, mid-market oil and gas firms that are a little one step below the kind of super majors. So so I think it's probably more in those markets, right, where we might expect to see some of these things come through. I'd agree with that. And if we widen the question of infrastructure out a little bit, a bit more widely, I mean, The the Economist has been covering this over the last couple of months in quite a lot of detail and infrastructure plans are obviously a, a big topic of conversation globally, same in the UK here. And the, the point The Economist makes is that the, the spending on infrastructure in developed markets, and particularly the US, has never been lower. It's been falling and falling and falling, and has, has reached a really low level. So it's not surprising that, that people are talking about it. But we shouldn't forget that both the Obama and the Trump administrations had very well trumpeted, very high profile headline grabbing infrastructure plans. And a lot of those have become mired in various delays and sort of the issues between the federal and state governments in the US and mayors and those sort of things. So the the point The Economist makes is that infrastructure is easy to say, it's much harder to do, and it's really hard to do well. That is true. I do think that
2: the infrastructure opportunity is a very real one for a number of reasons. So the first one is, we're a number of years further on, and a lot of the infrastructure that should have been built or renewed, that's not happened. Second one is that the pandemic has just created this build back better opportunity, which I think many governments and others want to take advantage of. And then the fact is that Infrastructure is a great way of stimulating economic growth, of getting people back to work. So it has lots of things going for it this time round relative to previous occasions, which I think will mean that meaningful allocations to infrastructure by governments, by private industry will take place.
0: And. You also sort of alluded before to the fact that the the narrative globally is is much less around austerity this time around and much more around spending, which which I guess aligns with that as well. I I think the really interesting point from our perspective as, as advisors to allocators is where does private capital come in there and what does the partnership look like between public and private capital? Again, The Economist was highlighting hasn't always worked that well. There are areas where perhaps private investment works better, areas where public investment works better. Again, it was making the point that a third of the bridges in the US are creaking and there's roads are full of potholes. Now, that's the sort of spent, very unfashionable spending that the federal government could do, but isn't something that's going to particularly make politicians look great, but could help. Whereas that's probably not something that private investment is going to get involved in. Whereas big, shiny wind farms, of course, everyone loves those, private investors, public investors. So get, getting that balance right, I suppose, is, is key to that.
2: Yeah. It's, the interesting point you make there about the US bridges that uh, it's something like a third of all US Bridges are 50 years old or so. And the point about where private versus public money should be deployed, to my mind, the, the way in which we can think about this is about the level of risk. So I think really it's governments, they've got the broader shoulders. So those are, that's the part of the investment market where the bigger risk should be taken on by governments and similar bodies. Whereas projects with lower levels of risk, I think those are more akin to what it is that private investors, pension schemes and others will actually want to in, to take on. So risk for me is a key driver of where the capital is most likely to be best deployed by those different parties.
0: Okay, well, moving on then. The third area we said we would discuss was was environment and climate policy, and we've sort of gone there already a little bit. So perhaps just to recap pretty quickly the discussion there. I mean, the big headline thing there is rejoining the Paris Accord, right? Which is recommitting the US to net zero by twenty fifty. As you've said, Paul, that that could have a meaningful effect on the sort of climate trajectory, which is obviously good news for you know for, for global citizens any particular insights on 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 the investment side there that we haven't already covered
1: there are sort of physical risks and there are transitional risks in sort of moving forward with those aims and i was speaking to a colleague uh, last week who we were sort of re- reflecting on biden being in power significantly reduces the chance that there is a failed transition so you know he's he's clearly quite visibly taking steps the impact he has on the sort of transitional risks, so therefore the physical risks are are reduced, I think, as a result of that. But the impact he has on the transitional risks, and as you said, Paul, it doesn't have to, we don't have to be in the moment where climate change is having a physical impact to feel those transitional risks. It's It's reactions to policy, that sort of thing. Actually, that's a lot less certain because depending on the timing of when Biden makes significant policy steps, we could see some sort of negative reaction or abrupt reaction, depending how strongly he goes in at, at which point in time.
2: That's exactly it. I, I agree entirely on that, Mary. That's one of the key risks I think investors have to be alive to in the next 12 months.
1: So, if we move on again, because I'm, I'm conscious time is, is passing, the fourth area that Dan highlighted at the start was to do with China policy. And we've seen, I guess, Continuously throughout Trump's sort of regime, we've seen various policy relating to China and including some some news quite recently. And I guess looking forward, what do we think Biden would change? Will he change very much in terms of China policy? Right. So
2: I think what's important to note is that w- what we can hope for is an approach to China by Biden, which firstly is more consistent than the one that we've seen under President Trump and one that is more multilateral in its approach. So therefore, trying to get other like-minded democracies on board to how we address the challenges that China faces, provides rather. The focus will be on three areas. So first, politically, he's likely to be more engaged than President Trump has been on issues such as the treatment of minorities and Hong Kong and also climate change. So the things where he will want to press China to make changes where he thinks they're doing things wrong and things such as climate change where he wants to push them to do things better than they are at the moment. There's then also the area of non-tariff barriers. So that, I think importantly, include limiting technology use by Chinese firms. So, for instance, stopping Huawei buying chips made or designed using US equipment, impacting supply change and also the level of investment between the two countries. And, I mean, finally, then you've got tariffs. So we have significant amounts of goods which are being imported to the US from China, 550 billion or so, and about 185 of US goods from being imported by China on which there are material tariffs. Now, in each of these areas, I think politically we'll see quite a lot of movement and change, uh, as I described it. As far as non-tariff barriers and tariffs are concerned, On non-tariff barriers, I'm not convinced that there will be much by way of change in the near term. I think the reality is that it's one of China's one of the few issues on which there is bipartisan agreement that the US needs to be both tougher and smarter. And therefore, I think that China is seen as a quite evidently the strategic challenger for the US for the foreseeable future. And on that basis, the US will look to do what it can to slow down China's advance. As far as tariffs are concerned, what I'd say is that there might be Some opportunities for those to be reduced to the benefit of both countries, but they might be linked back to changes of a political nature.
0: It's a really interesting point, isn't it, Paul? Because we've all sat sort of watching the headlines of trade wars and and maybe rolling our eyes a little bit at some of the kind of Trumpian rhetoric towards China and and certainly his his attitude that trade deficits are sort of a bad thing, result of bad deal making that should be negotiated away. But the point you make that there is a bipartisan agreement really in the US for a much tougher stance on China than pre-Trump often I think goes a little bit underappreciated. So we certainly aren't going to be going back to the sort of Obama era open arms embracing of of China and and those sort of things. And actually, therefore, as a negotiating stance, Biden might be quite well served by leaving in place to begin with a lot of the Trump stuff and just sort of winding it back tactically as as he can sort of earn um, some kind of quid pro quo from the other side. So I think that is kind of interesting because it looks a lot of maybe slightly more simplistic narrative rests on oh Biden will, will row back on all the all the Trump silliness around tariffs and that sort of stuff. But actually, it could be a question of not so fast.
2: I think that's absolutely right. He will take his time. President Biden will take his time to gather consensus on major areas of policy with China from allies. And we'll see a much more integrated approach. I think a much more more strategic, long-term thinking approach being adopted by Biden in this regard.
1: So in terms of impact on markets, I suppose it therefore depends whether markets had priced in a relaxation of policy towards China. I'm I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. So are we, are we sort of saying relatively neutral on on that in, in relation to Biden policy at this stage?
2: I am. Yeah, I, I think that markets generally have accepted that he's not going to introduce material changes as far as China policy is concerned in the immediate term.
0: Things like the Huawei sanctions, we're only at the very start of understanding what that could potentially mean, I think, right, is, is, is a big issue. I mean, I certainly read some commentators that say that could be a hugely transformational thing if it forces China to effectively rebuild their own version of everything, including Android operating systems and that sort of stuff. And, and so, yeah, it's very hard for markets to price what that potentially means. Um, and so, you know, whether Biden maintains that sort of posture or not through those sanctions is is something that I guess it, it's just hard for markets to interpret. I suppose.
2: Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the fact is that that will continue for quite some time. In fact, indefinitely China to my mind has recognised that. And therefore, as you say, Dan, it is starting to build up quite slowly, but it has the resource, the determination, the wherewithal, its own operations in these areas. So chip design, chip manufacturing, etc. It will take time for China to actually get close to what the US companies can actually do, but it's determined to do that. And therefore I think One of the longer term consequences of what we're seeing at the moment may well be a world that bifurcates between a China dominated one and a US dominated one, one in which there is introduction of inefficiencies in terms of manufacture, in terms of global trade, but one nonetheless that has to recognize the political realities of the time. And therefore, one of the questions that investors would have to ask themselves is if that's the kind of world that is likely to develop, how do I make sure that I'm properly exposed to the businesses? within those two spheres of influence? And how do I actually make sure that my investments are secure?
0: Yeah, well, and and that brings us on beautifully to the next point I wanted to discuss, actually, because I think a slightly underappreciated thing that could really affect a lot of investors is this issue over the delisting of some of the Chinese telcos in the New York Stock Exchange recently. And also related to that, the discussions over the, the ability of US investors to hold a whole variety of other Chinese companies, including firms as big as, as, big as Alibaba and, and those sort of things. So perhaps just to fill in the context for those people not familiar with the story, one of the Trump executive orders was that American investors couldn't invest in companies connected with the Chinese army. That was open to a bit of interpretation over who that included. Obviously, it could be pretty broad because a lot of Chinese firms have some some level of state ownership involved in them. And then from what I understand, the beginning of the year, the New York Stock Exchange decided that three US-listed Chinese telecommunications firms fell under that, uh, that banner effectively, so put forward plans to delist them. They then changed their mind and said they wouldn't. They then changed their mind again and said they would. So what I understand now is they they have been delisted and US investors required to disinvest by November, I think, of this year. And that has obviously had an effect on those companies, but then... Of course, a lot of our clients, investors generally have huge exposure to the likes of Alibaba and these really big Chinese internet companies, a lot of which are also listed in the US through various shell company sort of structures in some cases to, to, to sort of work around the Chinese rules. You know, so a, a big change there in, in the attitude of American investors could be potentially really quite impactful, I think, right?
2: Yes, without doubt. So, as you mentioned, Dan, at the moment it's just those three Chinese telecom stocks which the delisting has taken place. But if you actually look at Chinese companies that have a listing in states. It's probably closer to 200 stocks in total, and many of which are significant players in their respective markets, and many of which have actually performed particularly well in recent years. So there would be harm done to both those companies as well as to US and investors more widely if that delisting process were to continue to include some of those companies with private sector companies, which have got very limited exposure to PLA, but a strict interpretation of the the rules might suggest that they will in time be delisted.
0: Cool. Okay. Moving on then. Fifth area we're going to cover was around cabinet appointments. That Obviously, the President Biden has a lot of discretion and and power over those. And of course, with the Senate marginally in his favor, that also aligned things pretty nicely. And so from what I saw, when he's proposed or or put forward, what looks like the most diverse cabinet ever, I think, in in, in American history in terms of demographic diversity, which links nicely to our episode last week on rebel ideas, hopefully could be a powerful force in terms of idea generation and also representation. Representing the people. What do you see, Paul, as the key, some of the key appointments there that he's talking about?
2: I think you're right, Dan, to identify that he has gone for a significant level of diversity within his cabinet. What I think we also have to recognize, though, is that he's also gone for what some people perhaps have unkindly termed a bit of a retread. So what he's doing is essentially appointing people who have experience and many of whom appeared in previous Obama administrations. But I think that makes sense because in the current environment, a set of people of experience who might look at these things in fairly level-headed, some might say boring fashion, is probably just what we need. And as Biden himself has said, he said that you know, one reason you need old hands is that the old hands know where the bodies are buried. Looking at what might have happened under President Trump's watch, it's important that you have people who know how to go about the business of doing that. So I think particularly in terms of appointments he's made, Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary is important here. And clearly, she headed the Fed. She is a very highly respected individual, both for her policies and her opinions. And she is someone who's seen as being, I guess, towards the end of the dovish scale on Dove versus Hawk as far as interest rates and stimulus is concerned.
0: Just to debunk debunk that sort of jargon quickly, by that we mean on the more pro stimulation, pro-low rates, pro-growth and, and, and encouraging growth rather than on the side of being worried about inflation.
2: Exactly, Dan. Sorry about that.
0: She would allow the
2: economy to run faster, hotter, as we sometimes say. And I think that ties in quite nicely to the Federal Reserve stance now, which is that it will look at inflation over a period of time. Unspecified to effectively decide when it's appropriate to consider increasing interest rates. So, most economies have found it very difficult to generate long term inflation of a a moderate but healthy level. And therefore, the Fed's strategy of doing that very much points to my mind to an environment in which we will see, in time, because of all the stimulus that we've seen and other measures, inflation starting to move upwards and the Fed not necessarily being prepared to actually clamp down on that inflation level, given it's minded to look at longer term rather than shorter term inflation measures.
1: And I suppose in terms of impact on policy, I guess impact on fiscal policy in particular, do you see that sort of making a change based on Yellen being in that position?
2: Well, I think she's probably of a mind similar to that of President Biden, that American economy will be coming out of a very deep recession, one in which we will have seen a very sharp fall in the level of GDP, one of which we'll have seen a sharp increase in unemployment. And therefore, to close that output gap, to reduce the level of unemployment, you will want to run the economy in a way where both monetary tools are used to stimulate it, as well as fiscal tools. So yes, very much so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I listened to a great podcast The Economist did with Janet Yellen that was back in February of last year, when b- way before the, the election. It's quite interesting to revisit that for some of her views, but she's making the point there that she's, she sees fiscal and monetary policy working together. Uh, but another point she makes in that interview, which we haven't mentioned, is that she, she's a big proponent, or more than that. She's an architect of a potential carbon tax policy that's been quite thoroughly thought out, proposing a carbon tax at $43 a ton, increasing at 5% per annum, and, and giving a lot of that revenue out to households as a carbon dividend to try and make the politics of it work basically. So and that's something that hasn't been mentioned loads but but uh, you know that that's a good example of something that if it were to arrive that would certainly have market implications I guess for for firms and potentially positive or negative implications.
1: So the final area that we said we would cover is to do with tech antitrust. So I guess the the start of this story isn't specifically to do with Biden I suppose is it? There was there was a lot in the news over the course of the last year I suppose. And we've seen, was it Facebook was faced with its first antitrust case in late 2020? So what does that have to do with Biden? Is I guess a question for people.
2: You're right, Mary. We did see in December the US Federal Trade Commission actually initiate a case against Facebook. And in essence, its starting position is to call for a breakup of Facebook with the forcible disinvestment of Instagram and WhatsApp. But my own view is that That's probably not likely to happen. I don't think that's the direction that we will head. But what I do think we may well see is much stricter controls on the way in which these dominant market players can actually engage in merger and acquisition activity so therefore the argument is moving within so the antitrust environment within the competitive landscape is moving away from one in which competitor rather consumer welfare is considered first and foremost to one in which market structure and how that works is becoming much more front and center to those considerations and decisions so much more scrutiny on any
0: potential takeovers they might want to initiate in the future. One way I think it does map back to the, to the presidency, I guess, is just that last point you made there, Paul, and, and the, the fact that the antitrust rules in the US are very much set up, as they are here in the UK, around proving harm to consumers, which is very hard to do. And if you go back last summer to when the tech bosses all testified in front of Congress, there's a lot of anger there from from Democrat congressmen directed at different, and, and women, sorry, directed at different firms, so for quite widely varying reasons. But it, But it does seem to be the case that using the current antitrust rules against them would be quite hard. So I I guess having a Democrat sort of sweep of the the houses of of legislature, there's this argument that could there be a big revamp of the antitrust rules that would force things like companies to to break up, to spin out this talk of, you know, could Google spin out YouTube? Should Facebook have to break up to create more competition? Should the app store need more competition? Should should Amazon have different competition protections within it? And, And so I suppose it's that change in regulation which would be the real big threat if you like to the to the share prices of these firms because that's the terms i guess that investors would see in him
2: i do agree and i think one thing we need to remember though of course is that many democrats hail from tech heartlands yeah so there's a political angle to this inevitably in terms of how that will play out we're not just thinking about markets per se
0: and then I guess so far it's something that, that that markets haven't particularly reacted to, right? I mean, as you say, there's a case launched against Facebook last year. There's also been an antitrust case against Google, I think, or actually a, a couple of them since since late last year. And markets are more or less shrugging it off, I think, for now and sort of saying, well, yeah, it's it's, it's not really going to change stuff. I, I agree. I agree. Fine. Okay. Well, that has been a really quick whistle stop tour through and through those those areas, but I think we have hopefully covered some some really really good ground there. So, just as we're wrapping up, then, Paul, a couple of questions that we always like to ask our guests. What's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this whole episode?
2: The thing I'd like people to take away is that the trend is for higher inflation. So, I do think that the fact the Democrats won both Senate seats in Georgia to give them that 50 50 plus a casting vote in the Senate does make a material difference on the kind of legislation that they will be able to get through. I see that as being very much stimulatory. And on that basis, the time frame for inflation actually becoming an issue investors really have to think about carefully has been brought forward. Putting a time frame on it, it's not this year, it may not even be next, but it is certainly a lot sooner than we perhaps had anticipated before that election took place.
1: Right. Paul, final question from me. What do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing?
2: Yeah, well, there's a passion book, an Ernest Hemingway book that some listeners might know called The Sun Also Rises. And in that book there's a character called Mike, and he's asked how he went bankrupt. He says two ways. He says gradually, then suddenly. (laughs) And to my mind, changes in investment markets and investors' views, they can happen in much the same way. And to link it back to stuff we were talking about earlier, I very much think this might be the case as far as the impact of climate change on assets and asset prices is concerned. So I would encourage people to think about that point particularly carefully. Fantastic.
0: Thanks, Paul. That's a lovely point to leave it all on. It's been an absolutely great discussion today, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mary.
1: Thanks, Bye. Paul. It's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care.